Now's the time to grab your copy of the scriptures, my friend, and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I began the service this morning quoting uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, one who said uh, these words, perhaps they will ring through your ears here this week. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Hmm. Anyone who has a reason to live can endure almost anything. Consider those words for a moment here, friends. And perhaps uh, keep your finger in Philippians 1. You might want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul talks about the things that he has endured for preaching the gospel. Chapter 11 and verse uh, 23. You know, he talks about his labors and his imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times, Paul says here, I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, and danger from the Gentiles. Dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers and in toil and hardship through many sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of, on me and my anxiety for all of the churches. Consider that life. This is the life that we talk about where Paul is able to do, endure because there's a reason to be there. Today, when we begin our study through the book of Philippians here, my friends, I want to remind you of uh, the context here. The Apostle Paul is in prison right now. And uh, the writing of this letter takes place perhaps as a, a thank you note to the church at Philippi. They sent their pastor, Epaphroditus, uh, who would uh, bring encouragement to Paul while he is in prison. And the church itself had gathered up an offering, money, resources, because in prison in those days, you took care of yourself. You were dependent on family and anyone who would bring you food and anything else that you needed. But here is Paul some 800 miles away. And the church says, we've got to act for this man. We've got to do something. And so that is the origin, perhaps, of the reason for this letter that Paul is writing here to the church at Philippi. And we're going to see some thank yous in here, some good, good, good stuff, reminders about what is true and what matters, and perhaps what we ought to even put ourselves in danger for, the preaching of the gospel, my friends. Well, this letter begins like many of Paul's letters with a couple of exceptions. Here in verse 1, we see Paul's greeting. 
you know, and uh, in that day, you know, we, we, when we write a letter, we don't put our name in until the very end there. We assume by the envelope they know who wrote it. And perhaps when you open up something, the first thing you do is find out who it's from. Paul begins this letter with, I, Paul, and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servant there sounds perhaps like a mild word. It is the Greek word doulos. Everyone say doulos. Yeah, it means servant or slave. It means someone who is owned by someone else. This is the way Paul saw himself in relationship with Jesus Christ. I belong to him. My days belong to him. My priorities belong to him. My gifts, my skills, my abilities all belong to Jesus. So here I, Paul, and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And right here, there is something notably absent here. In often of Paul's letters, he includes that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He leaves that out here. So perhaps uh, uh, when Paul does that, he reminds the hearers of, or the readers of his epistles of his authority to say the things that he is about to say. And so it perhaps sets a different tone for the readers at Philippi. He writes this with some gratitude, friends, not so much with the impending authority that he has. You know, to the saints in Christ Jesus, and that word saints there, again, that, that uh, word that is often thrown about in religious circles and, and used in a way that it was never meant to use, the saints of Christ are those who have been set apart for God's purposes. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are baptized into the church and you are set apart from the rest of this world, distinct and unique for the purposes of God. Consider that for a moment in a world, in a culture that says, me, 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 and my way. I'll have it my way. But the Christian lives differently. We live for the cause of Christ, for the purposes of Christ. And we work and we serve and we live for the glory of God. So to the saints in Christ Jesus, set apart by God for his purposes. All right, so making that clear, Paul, identifying who he is and reminding them who they are. Interesting way to begin a letter. And then he identifies, of course, where they are. The saints, you know, uh, set apart from God by God, you know, who are at Philippi. Now, Philippi was a city, you know, in the Romans' massive army. They took up all kinds of places. Philippi was one of them. It was a strategic military location. And the uh, The people who lived there were transplants. They were taken from other areas, put in Philippi. And because they were away from Rome, they thought, perhaps we'll miss our citizenship, what came at a great value, my friends. But that that land in Philippi was considered actually to be Roman soil by the Romans. And anyone that lived there would be a Roman citizen And the great thing about being a Roman citizen is they didn't pay taxes. 
So uh, Roman citizens tend to flaunt their citizenship, and we'll see that Paul corrects them later on in this letter, reminding them that they are not really citizens of Rome as much as they are citizens of heaven. All right, my friends. So as we continue on here, you know, we see this, this uh, address also to the saints, and then he addresses some officers of the church, perhaps. He says, with the overseers. This would be a reference to the elders, those who lead the church of God. Paul had instructed Timothy that they would appoint elders in every church, elders to be appointed. He gave um, the characteristics or the uh, responsibilities and... Um, and uh, what, what elders ought to be, what kind of people they ought to be. Well, here comes the transition, my friends. A greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see here in verses 3 to 11, Paul is expressing his gratitude and love for this church. And we're going to see, my friends, some signs of his commitment to the church. And as we take a look at these signs, my friend, I'm going to ask you you to evaluate your own ideas and thoughts about the church. Because, my friends, these are worthy goals. You are the church. If I say, where is the church, you go like this. Because we're all part of the church, not just family Bible church, the big C, capital C, the church of all times, of all locations, of all languages, of all of those who have put their faith in Christ. We are part of the church. And what is your commitment level to the church? You know, and, and I wonder, how would you evaluate that? You know, what would be your description of those who would be committed to the church. Well, let's take a look at Paul's. I notice here in verses 3 to 6, Paul uh, expresses that the church is on your mind. The church is always on your mind. According to Paul, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Memories, powerful, powerful things, memories. And Paul is saying, wherever I go, Whenever I begin to pray, you always slip in there on the big time on the list because you people matter. I mean, what is on your mind these days? What are the things in those free moments that always come to mind? Think of the myriad of things that you could be thinking about. You know, I ask myself the same question and, you know, mostly they involve my wife some woodworking along the way. Of course, in a big way, one of those drywallers coming. <laughs> How much progress have they gotten? I'll tell you, this project is big time heavy on my mind. And then I think about the people who will be there. And I pray for you. I walk around that auditorium, probably look like a crazy person talking, you know, but I'm talking to God. I'm praying for the people who will be sitting in that front row. Well, maybe nobody will be sitting there. <laughs> you know, but just praying through the auditorium. I know you generally tend to sit in the same places over and over again, don't you? Creatures of habit. Yeah. What's on your mind these days, friends? Stuff around the house. Got to get to that project. 
a big important meeting coming up, wondering what it is that God will do, hoping that he will step in and do what is good and right, that you'll be ready for it, whatever it is. For Paul, the church was on his mind. I thank God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, and all making my prayer with joy. Not every prayer, friends, seems to be filled with joy. Some prayers are, are deep and heavy and maybe prayed in prayer with tears in your face. But Paul's prayer for the church was one of joy. And he even tells us why. You know, this prayer, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Consider this, Paul's hardship made him better rather than bitter. And I suppose it all depends on what it is you're committed to and that would uh, impact whether or not you were better because of it, for investing in it, or bitter. Hmm. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They were kindred spirits, this church at Philippi. Paul's commitment was to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel and watch people's lives and eternities be changed in a moment, the very moment they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul found the church at Philippi to be kindred spirits in this. He talked about their partnership in the gospel. In what way did they partner? Well, certainly they supported the guy that was preaching the gospel so much so, they said, <laughs> let's send our pastor. He can go. He's a guy with a gift of encouragement. He'll go encourage this guy. Let's all take an offering. Let's sacrifice for what he's doing. We believe in it. Therefore, we invest in it. Think about it. And that's the church at Philippi. Wow. Some good examples there, friends. Is Family Bible Church the kind of church that supports those doing the work of preaching the gospel? You know? Missions. You know what's in our Constitution? That 10% of everything that comes in our offerings goes right to supporting missionaries. Supporting those who preach the gospel. Near and far, my friends. Near and far. It's astounding. So the church is on his mind, and he is thankful for their partnership. And in remembering them and praying for them, my friends, we notice that he is also confident of their progress. Look at here. My friends, if you've got a paper edition here, my guess is this one should be underlined here. Look at verse 6. This is not just true for the church at Philippi, but for everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them, confident of their progress, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And what is that work? that God is doing in your life, the very one who started it by opening your eyes to the truth of the gospel and your circumstance being lost in your sin. In that very moment that you turned your heart to him and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he began a work to transform you to the character of his son, the image of his son. 
my friends, that is the very moment you put your faith in Christ, God made a deposit in your account. He took the righteousness that belongs to Jesus and imputed it into your account. It's an accounting term, imputed righteousness. The righteousness by which we stand before God today is not our own. It is the righteousness of Christ. The reason we could stand in the presence of God, my friends, is because of the righteousness imputed into our account. And so there it is. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the church was on Paul's mind, but it wasn't just on his mind, my friends. It was on his heart. Look at here in verse 7, where Paul reminds them that we are all partakers of God's grace. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. For you all partakers with me of God's grace. Of grace, my friends. Grace of God. God's grace is his generosity to us, my friend enabling us to do what we would otherwise be unable to do. God's riches at our expense, an acronym of the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Consider the grace of God that drew us to himself. The grace of God that enables us to live for him. Grace. The grace of God. We are partakers of of this grace. So my friends, it is right for me, Paul says, to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart and we are all partakers of with, of, with me of this grace. We are a family. We're a body. We're a church. We belong together. We need one another. Paul knew it. Do you? Do you know you need everyone in this room? Everyone in this room, different gifts, different experiences, different talents, everyone needed, absolutely everyone. It does not matter how old you are or how young you are, everyone is needed, and we are all partakers of his grace. And look at here, Paul doesn't even stop there. After, with me of his grace here, ends with a comma, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, partners together, partakers with me. Paul, while he may have been in Rome all alone sitting in that prison cell, he knew the church of Philippi was with him. What a great thought, isn't it? People standing with one another for the cause of Christ and the grace of God. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You get the feeling that Paul likes these people, don't you? You know, it just exudes from this letter. It was a real affinity, a real connection with Paul and the church at Philippi. Partnering in the gospel ministry. Hmm. Wow. Well, the church at Philippi was not just on Paul's mind and in his heart. 
the church at Philippi was in the was in the apostles Paul, <laughs> the apostle Paul's prayers. Take the, take a look. It was on his prayer list here, and I want you to notice, friends. This, this great example for us, and I hope you don't throw these notes away once you get home so you don't clutter your Bible. I, I hope that you transition this into a guide for your prayer list for Family Bible Church. <coughs> Notice in verse 9 here, he says, Paul says, It is my prayer that your love abound more and more. And so I recommend that every one of us ought to be praying that the church might abound in love. And we know what love is, friend. Love is not just affection for someone. I believe that affection follows action. The investment of sacrificing ourselves for the good of someone else. Saying no even to something good. For the good of someone else. It's easy to say no to bad things. I didn't want to go to that anyway. I guess I can spend some time with these people. But man, friends, it's easy to say sacrifice those bad things. Those things we don't really want. But sacrificing the good for the sake of someone else. That's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Gave the best, my friend. Gave the best. That is love. And so the church is on Paul's prayer that the church might abound in love. More and more, Paul adds, as if the word abound wasn't enough. More and more and more. My friends, love is what sets the church apart, or it ought to. Every child of God ought to be different because of love. They ought to recognize us as followers of Christ by the love that we have for one another. It ought to become such a habit in our life of loving, of giving, of caring for people that it shows up everywhere. I wonder even now, anybody come to mind that fits that description in your life? When I think of it, I think of my mom. My mom just gave and gave and gave, always with a big smile on her face, driven by love. What a great example I had in my life. I see that in my wife as well, giving and giving and giving. I had to lock my bedroom door and keep her in bed today because she's sick. And she's laying there moaning, going, what about set up? Pool? <laughs> She loves you people. She surely does. I tell you. But she's at home asleep right now, I hope. It's probably clean in the house. <laughs> I do love that woman. Well, on that list that continues here, verse 9, he also adds, with knowledge and all discernment. Love with knowledge. Knowledge, my friends, is not the understanding of facts, my friends. It is, it is more than just knowing what is true. It is understanding what to do with it. Knowledge. Not just the gathering of facts, but understanding. And so people growing and knowing and discernment. Being able to tell what is good and what is best. Knowing the difference between what is good and what is best. 
Many people waste their life in merely satisfying for what is good when best was just another step away. Friends, choose what is best, what glorifies God, what builds up the church, what models Christ to your neighbors. Choose what is best. And verse 10 here, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Purity, purity. The word pure means one thing, my friends. Not a mixed bag of a whole lot of hobbies and things to do, but purity, one thing. Choosing one thing, my friends. And choosing the right thing requires knowledge and discernment. These are things that you ought to be praying for, for your own self as well as for the church. God, help that my love, this love that comes from God, it is a fruit of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God has free reign in your life, the Spirit of God develops these things into your world, into your life. Love discernment, knowledge, that the church might be pure. There it is, one thing, and blameless. No shadows, nothing to hide as we stand before Christ one day. And we most certainly will. We most certainly will, my friends. With all of our life and all of our choices and all of our habits and all of our thoughts, laid bare before him. And my friends, that, that when we stand before him, it is not about judgment. The judgment has taken place at the cross. Christ died for our sin and our carelessness, our thoughtlessness. But what we have for him now is a gift to him, an expression of love and gratitude toward him. What are you bringing? What are you bringing? Wow, so pray that the church might be pure, verse 10. And verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so pray that the church might exhibit the marks of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. Right, fruit is, is what is produced. Righteousness, that which is right, a righteous standing we have before God. But it doesn't mean we're living it out. The fruit of righteousness ought to be holiness in our life. What is holiness? Holiness is purity. One thing. Living right before God. In the secret places. Friends, you can fool anyone, but you can't fool God. Putting on the happy face and dressing nice and quoting scriptures you learned in third grade Sunday school. You know, you can pull the wool over people's eyes, but you can't fool God. My friends, and that's the only place you ought to be living to please is God. Man's opinion will change. People will have ideas about you, but the only one that you ought to be living before is God. Be careful. Guard your thoughts. Thoughts become ideas, ideas become actions, actions become habits, habits become destinies, my friends. Watch those thoughts. Be pure in your thinking, and you will be pure in your living. 
Consider that, my friends. Marks the fruit of righteousness comes through Christ. And finally here, pray that the church might do all things for the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Glory is fame. Let's consider that. The fame of Christ in your life and in your decisions. If people are watching you, and they are, does their stock in God go higher because of what they see in your life? By the way you speak, the words you use, the habits you've developed in the workplace, in the neighborhood, a little carelessness here and carelessness there. Is the name of God shamed because of you or glorified? Do people believe something better about God because of what they've seen in your life? That's what we need to be praying about, friends, and focusing on. You're laying the groundwork perhaps for one day sharing the gospel with these people or maybe it's a friend of theirs and a neighbor on the other side. Maybe it's a family member that wants to talk about Christ and their mind goes to you. Have you helped that person share Christ by the way that you live? Friends, we've got to be praying about this because if it's in our prayer list, it's going to be in our mind. And if it's in our mind, it's going to end up in our actions. We're going to make decisions. Because, friends, the things that matter most to us will be in our minds. The priorities of life. What we love will always occupy our thoughts. So let me ask you this. Something for you to consider. Do you love the church? Because I'll tell you what. Jesus loves the church. I want to love the things that God loves. And I know he loves you people. I got chills just thinking about how much he loves you. You have no idea the depths of his love. I mean, he knows absolutely everything about you. The worst, most humiliating, disgusting things that you've said or done. And none of it gets in the way of his love for you. He didn't love you in spite of those things. He just loves you. There's no little nick off his love because of that, my friends. The church is the one thing that God is doing in this world. He is building his church. All of the investment of heaven is in us. Man. We are not worthy of that, my friends. But God has invested heavily. He loves us so much. He gave his son. He gave us his spirit to produce in us spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. I missed one or two in there. Tell me. What did I miss? Huh? Self-control. Self-control couldn't help myself. I had to ask. (laughs) 
These are things that the Spirit of God produces in us. These are not habits we try to develop, my friends. An apple tree doesn't try to produce apples. It produces apples because it is an apple tree. Tell that one to your kids. (laughs) But what we love will occupy our thoughts, my friends. So what is it that dominates your thoughts? What dominate? What is it that is so pressing in your mind today? What makes you worry and rush to and fro, sacrificing along the way? Is it the kind of thing that brings glory to God? If you were to go in the midst of it, would you be ashamed or would you be delighted? Would you offer it up as worship to God? My friends, I recommend that you learn to love what God loves. That's people like me and you. Fall in love with the church by praying for it. I guarantee if you invest the time in prayer and you walk around the room in your mind praying for these people, whether you know what's going on in their life or not, my friends, they need your prayers and you need to pray for them. It is good for your soul. But the more you invest in the church, the more you will love the church. And finally here, friends, I commend you to grow in love by the church, for the church by sacrificing for the church. Giving up that which is good for something better. The investment you make in what God is doing lasts forever. The praise of it, the angels in heaven, they celebrate, my friends, what is done according to God's will in his way and for his glory. Look around this room. Everyone in here matters. Even the people not here today, the families that have recently come among us, we rejoice for. But there are more, my friends. We bought chairs for that new place, and I can't wait to meet the people who will sit in them. God is doing great things among us in our lives, through our lives, and he's building his church. That's something to be thankful for.